Chapter One, Part One of the Subjection of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paradise Camouflage. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter One, Part One. The object of this essay is to explain as clearly as I am able grounds of an opinion which I have held from the very earliest period when I had formed any opinions at all on social-political matters, and which, instead of being weakened or modified, has been constantly growing stronger by the progress, reflection, and the experience of life. That the principle which regulates the existing social relations between the two sexes the legal subordination of one sex to the other is wrong itself, and now one of the chief hindrances to human improvement, and that it ought to be replaced by a principle of perfect equality, admitting no power or privilege on the one side, nor disability on the other. The very words necessary to express the task I have undertaken show how arduous it is, but it would be a mistake to suppose that the difficulty of the case must lie in the insufficiency or obscurity of the grounds of reason on which my convictions. The difficulty is that which exists in all cases in which there is a mass of feeling to be contended against. So long as opinion is strongly rooted in the feelings, it gains rather than loses in stability, by having a preponderating weight of argument against it. For, if it were accepted as a result of argument, the refutation of the argument might shake the solidity of the conviction. But when it rests solely on feeling, worse it fares in argumentative contest, the more persuaded adherents are that their feeling must have some deeper ground which the arguments do not reach. And while the feeling remains, it is always throwing up fresh entrenchments of argument to repair any breach made in the old. And there are so many causes tending to make the feelings connected with this subject the most intense and most deeply rooted of those which gather around and protect old institutions and custom, that we need not wonder to find them as yet less undetermined and loosened than any of the rest by the progress the great modern spiritual and social transition nor suppose that the barbarisms to which men cling longest must be less barbarisms than those which they earlier shake off. In every respect the burthen is hard on those who attack an almost universal opinion. They must be very fortunate, well as unusually capable, if they obtain a hearing at all. They have more difficulty in obtaining a trial than any other litigants have in getting a verdict. If they do extort a hearing, they are subjected to a set of logical requirements totally different from those exacted from other people. In all other cases, burthen of proof is supposed to lie with the affirmative. If a person is charged with a murder, it rests with those who accuse him to give proof of his guilt, not with him to prove his innocence. If there is a difference of opinion about the reality of an alleged historical event, in which the feelings of men general are not much interested, as the Siege of Troy example, those who maintain that the event took place expected to produce their proofs before those who take the other side can be required to say anything. 
and at no time these require to do more than show that the evidence produced by the others is of no value. Again, in practical matters, the burden of proof is supposed to be with those who are against liberty, who contend for any restriction or prohibition, either any limitation of the general freedom of human action, or any disqualification or disparity of privilege affecting one person or kind of persons, as compared with others. The a priori presumption is in favour of freedom and impartiality. It is held that there should be no restraint not required by the general good, and that the law should be no respecter of persons, but should treat all alike, save where dissimilarity of treatment is required by positive reasons, either of justice or of policy. But of none of these rules of evidence will the benefit be allowed to those who maintain the opinion I profess. It is useless of me to say that those who maintain the doctrine that men have a right to command and women are under an obligation to obey, or that men are fit for government and women unfit, on the affirmative side of the question, and that they are bound to show positive evidence for the assertions or submit to their rejection. It is equally unavailing to say that those who deny to women any freedom or privilege rightly allowed to men having the double presumption against them that they are opposing freedom and recommending partiality, must be held to the strictest proof of their case, and unless their success be such as to exclude all doubt, the judgment ought to be against them. This would be thought good pleas in any common case, but they will not be thought so in this instance. Before I could hope to make any impression, I should be expected not only to answer all that has ever been said by those who take the other side of the question, but to imagine that could be said by them. Define them in reasons, as I as answer all I find, and besides refuting all arguments for the affirmative, I shall be called upon for invincible positive arguments to prove a negative. And even if I could do all and leave the opposite party with a host of unanswered arguments against them, and not a single unrefuted one on side, I should be thought to have done little, for a cause supported on the one hand by universal usage, and on the other by so great a preponderance of popular sentiment, is supposed to have a presumption in its favour, superior to any conviction which an appeal to reason has power to produce in intellects but those of a high class. I do not mention these difficulties to complain of them. First, use it would be useless. They are inseparable from having to contend through people's misunderstandings against the hostility their feelings and practical tendencies, and truly the understandings of the majority of mankind would need to be much better cultivated than has ever yet been the case, before they be asked to place such reliance in their own power of estimating arguments, as to give up practical principles in which have been born and bred, and which are the basis of much existing order of the world, at the first argumentative attack, which they are not capable of logically resisting. I do not therefore quarrel with them for having too little faith in argument, but for having too much faith in custom and the general feeling. It is one of the characteristic prejudices of the ion of the nineteenth century against the eighteenth, to accord to the unreasoning elements in human nature the infallibility 
which the eighteenth century is supposed to have ascribed to the reasoning elements. For the apotheosis of reason we have substituted that of instinct, and we call thing instinct which we find in ourselves and for which we cannot trace any rational foundation. This idolatry, infinitely more degrading than the other, and the most pernicious of the false worships of the present day, all of which it is the main support, will probably hold its ground until it weigh before a sound psychology laying bare the real root of much that is bowed down to as the intention of nature and ordinance of God. As regards the present question, I am going to accept the unfavourable conditions which the prejudice assigns to me. I consent that established custom and the general feelings should be deemed conclusive against me, unless that custom and feeling from age to age can be shown to have owed their existence to other causes than their soundness, and to have derived their power from the worse rather than the better parts of human nature. I am willing that judgment should go against me, unless I can show that my judge has been tampered with. The concession is not so great as it might appear, for to prove this is by far the easiest portion of my task. The generality of a practice is, in some cases, a strong presumption that it is, or at all events once was, conducive to laudable ends. This is the case when the practice was first adopted, or afterwards kept up, as a means to such ends, and was grounded on experience of the mode in which they could be most effectually attained. If the authority of men over women, when first established, had been the result of a conscientious comparison between different modes of constituting the government of society, if, after trying various other modes of social organization, the government of women over men, equality between the two, and such mixed and divided modes of government as might be invented, it had been decided on the testimony of experience that the mode in which women are wholly under the rule of men, having no share at all in public concerns, and each in private being under the legal obligation of obedience to the man with whom she has associated her destiny, was the arrangement most conducive to the happiness and well-being of both, its general adoption might then have been fairly thought to be some evidence that, at the time when it was adopted, it was the best, though even then the considerations which recommended it may, like so many other primeval social facts of the greatest importance, have subsequently, in the course of ages, ceased to exist. But the state of the case is in every respect the reverse of this. In the first place, the opinion in favour of the present system, which entirely subordinates the weaker sex to the stronger, rests upon theory only, for there never has been trial made of any other, so that experience, in the sense in which it is vulgarly opposed to theory, cannot be pretended to have pronounced any verdict. And in the second place, the adoption of this system of inequality, never was the result of deliberation, or forethought of any social ideas, or any notion whatever of what conduced to the benefit of humanity or the good order of society. It arose simply from the fact that, from the very earliest twilight of human society, 
every woman, owing to the value attached to her by men, combined with her inferiority in muscular strength, was found in a state of bondage to some man. Laws and systems of polity always begin by recognizing the relations they find already existing between individuals. They convert what was a mere physical fact into a legal right, give it the sanction of society, and principally aim at the substitution of public and organized means of asserting and protecting these rights, instead of the irregular and lawless conflict of physical strength. Those who had already been compelled to obedience became in this manner legally bound to it. Slavery, from being a mere affair of force between the master and the slave, became regularized and a matter of compact among the masters, who, binding themselves to one another for common protection, guaranteed by their collective strength the private possessions of each, including his slaves. In early times, the great majority of the male sex were slaves, as well as the whole of the female, and many ages elapsed, some of them ages of high cultivation, before any thinker was bold enough to question the rightfulness and the absolute social necessity, either of the one slavery or of the other. By degrees such thinkers did arise, and the general progress of society assisting, the slavery of the male sex has, in all the countries of Christian Europe at least, though in one of them only within the last few years, been at length abolished, and that of the female sex has been gradually changed into a milder form of dependence. But this dependence, as it exists at present, is not an original institution, taking a fresh start from considerations of justice and social expediency. It is the primitive state of slavery lasting on, through successive mitigations and modifications occasioned by the same causes which have softened the general manners and brought all human relations more under the control of justice and the influence of humanity. It has not lost the taint of its brutal origin. No presumption in its favour, therefore, can be drawn from the fact of its existence. The only such presumption which it could be supposed to have must be grounded on its having lasted till now, when so many other things which came down from the same odious source have been done away with. And this, indeed, is what makes it strange to ordinary ears to hear it asserted that the inequality of rights between men and women has no other source than the law of the strongest. That this statement should have the effect of a paradox is in some respects creditable to the progress of civilization and the improvement of the moral sentiments of mankind. We now live, that is to say, one or two of the most advanced nations in the world now live, in a state in which the law of the strongest seems to be entirely abandoned as the regulating principle of the world's affairs. Nobody professes it, and, as regards most of the relations between human beings, nobody is permitted to practice it. When anyone succeeds in doing so, it is under cover of some pretext which gives him the semblance 
of having some general social interest on his side. This being the ostensible state of things, people flatter themselves that the rule of mere force is ended, that the law of the strongest cannot be the reason of existence of anything which has remained in full operation down to the present time. However any of our present institutions may have begun, it can only, they think, have been preserved to this period of advanced civilization by a well-grounded feeling of its adaptation to human nature and conduciveness to the greater good. They do not understand the great vitality and durability of institutions which place right on the side of might, how intensely they are clung to, how the good as well as the bad propensities and sentiments of those who have power in their hands become identified with retaining it. How slowly these bad institutions give way, one at a time, the weakest first, beginning with those which are least interwoven with the daily habits of life, and how very rarely those who have obtained legal power because they first had physical have ever lost their hold of it until the physical power had passed over to the other side. Such shifting of the physical force not having taken place in the case of women, this fact, combined with all the peculiar and characteristic features of the particular case, made it certain from the first that this branch of the system of right, founded on might, though softened in its most atrocious features at an earlier period than several of the others, would be the very last to disappear. It was inevitable that this one case of a social relation grounded on force would survive through generations of institutions grounded on equal justice, an almost solitary exception to the general character of their laws and customs, but which, so long as it does not proclaim its own origin, and as discussion has not brought out its true character, is not felt to jar with modern civilization any more than domestic slavery amongst the Greeks jarred with their notion of themselves as a free people. The truth is that people of the present and the last two or three generations have lost all practical sense of the primitive condition of humanity, and only the few who have studied history accurately, or have much frequented the parts of the world occupied by the living representatives of ages long past, are able to form any mental picture of what society then was. People are not aware how entirely, in former ages, the law of superior strength was the rule of life, how publicly and openly it was avowed. I do not say cynically or shamelessly, for these words imply a feeling that there was something in it to be ashamed of, and no such notion could have found a place in the faculties of any person of those ages except a philosopher or a saint. History gives a cruel experience of human nature, in showing how exactly the regard due to the life, possessions, and entire earthly happiness of any class of persons was measured by what they had the power of enforcing. How all who made any resistance to authorities that had arms in their hands, however dreadful might be the provocation, had not only the law of force, but all other laws, and all the notions of social obligation against them, and in the eyes of those whom they resisted, were not only guilty of crime, but 
of the worst of all crimes, deserving the most cruel chastisement which human beings could inflict. The first small vestige of feeling of obligation in a superior to acknowledge any right in inferiors began when he had been induced for convenience to make some promise to them. Through these promises, even when sanctioned by the most solemn oaths, were for many ages revoked or violated on the most trifling provocation or temptation. It is probably that this, except by persons of still worse than the average morality, was seldom done without some twinges of conscience. The ancient republics, being mostly grounded from the first upon some kind of mutual compact, or at any rate formed by a union of persons not very unequal in strength, afforded in consequence the first instance of a portion of human relations fenced round, and placed under the dominion of another law than that of force. And though the original law of force remained in full operation between them and their slaves, and also, except so far as limited by express compact, between a commonwealth and its subject, or other independent commonwealths, the banishment of that primitive law, even from so narrow a field, commenced the regeneration of human nature, by giving birth to sentiments of which experience soon demonstrated the immense value even for material interests, and which thenceforward only required to be enlarged, not created. Though slaves were no part of the commonwealth, it was in the free states that slaves were first felt to have rights as human beings. The Stoics were, I believe, the first, except so far as the Jewish law constitutes an exception, who taught as a part of morality that men were bound by moral obligation to their slaves. No one, after Christianity became ascendant, could ever again have been a stranger to this belief, in theory. Nor, after the rise of the Catholic Church, was it ever without persons to stand up for it. Yet to enforce it was the most arduous task which Christianity ever had to perform. For more than a thousand years the Church kept up the contest with hardly any perceptible success. It was not for want of power over men's minds. Its power was prodigious. It could make kings and nobles resign their most valued possessions to enrich the Church. It could make thousands in the prime of life, in the height of worldly advantages, shut themselves up in convents to work out their salvation by poverty, fasting, and prayer. It could send hundreds of thousands across land and sea, Europe and Asia, to give their lives for the deliverance of the holy sepulchre. It could make kings relinquish wives who were the object of their passionate attachment, because the church declared that they were within the seventh, by our calculation, fourteenth degree of relationship. All this it did, but it could not make men fight less with one another, nor tyrannize less cruelly over the serfs, and when they were able, over burgesses. It could not make them renounce either of the applications of force, force militant or force triumphant. This they could never be induced to do until they were themselves in their turn compelled by superior force. Only by the growing power of kings was an end put to fighting 
except between kings or competitors for kingship. Only by the growth of a wealthy and warlike bourgeoisie in the fortified towns, and of a plebeian infantry which proved more powerful in the field than the undisciplined chivalry, was the insolent tyranny of the nobles over the bourgeoisie and peasantry brought within some bounds. It was persisted in not only until, but long after the oppressed had attained a power enabling them to take conspicuous vengeance, and on the continent much of it continued to the time of the French Revolution, though in England the earlier and better organization of the democratic classes put an end to it sooner, by establishing equal laws and free national institutions. End of chapter 1, part 1, read by Andy from Invernon, Scotland. Chapter 1, Part 2 of The Subjection of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter 1, Part 2. If people are mostly so little aware how completely, during the greater part of the duration of our species, the law of force was the avowed rule of general conduct, any other being only a special and exceptional consequence of peculiar ties, and from how very recent a date it is that the affairs of society in general have been even pretended to be regulated according to any moral law, as little do people remember or consider how institutions and customs which never had any ground but the law of force last on into ages and states of general opinion which never would have permitted their first establishment. Less than forty years ago, Englishmen might still by law hold human beings in bondage as saleable property. Within the present century, they might kidnap them and carry them off, and work them literally to death. This absolutely extreme case of the law of force, condemned by those who can tolerate almost every other form of arbitrary power, and which, of all others, presents features the most revolting to the feelings of all who look at it from an impartial position, was the law of civilized and Christian England, within the memory of persons now living, and in one half of Anglo-Saxon America three or four years ago, not only did slavery exist, but the slave trade, and the breeding of slaves expressly for it, was a general practice between slave states. Yet not only was there a greater strength of sentiment against it, but, in England at least, a less amount either of feeling or of interest in favor of it than of any other of the customary abuses of force, for its motive was the love of gain, unmixed and undisguised, and those who profited by it were a very small numerical fraction of the country, while the natural feeling of all who were not personally interested in it was unmitigated abhorrence. So extreme an instance makes it almost superfluous to refer to any other, but consider the long duration of absolute monarchy. In England at present, it is the almost universal conviction that military despotism is a case of the law of force, having no other origin or justification. Yet in all the great nations of Europe, except England, it either still exists, or has only just ceased to exist, and has even now a strong party favorable to it in all ranks of the people, especially among persons of station and consequence. Such is the power of an established system, even when far from universal, 
when not only in almost every period of history there have been great and well-known examples of the contrary system, but these have almost invariably been afforded by the most illustrious and most prosperous communities. In this case, too, the possessor of the undue power, the person directly interested in it, is only one person, while those who are subject to it and suffer from it are literally all the rest. The yoke is naturally and necessarily humiliating to all persons, except the one who is on the throne, together with, at most, the one who expects to succeed to it. How different are these cases from that of the power of men over women? I am not now prejudging the question of its justifiableness. I am showing how vastly more permanent it could not but be, even if not justifiable, than these other dominations which have nevertheless lasted down to our own time. Whatever gratification of pride there is in the possession of power, and whatever personal interest in its exercise, is in this case not confined to a limited class, but common to the whole male sex, instead of being to most of its supporters a thing desirable chiefly in the abstract, or, like the political ends usually contended for by factions, of little private importance to any but the leaders, it comes home to the person and hearth of every male head of a family, and of every one who looks forward to being so. The clodhopper exercises, or is to exercise, his share of the power equally with the highest nobleman, and the case is that in which the desire of power is the strongest. For every one who desires power desires it most over those who are nearest to him, with whom his life is passed, with whom he has most concerns in common, and in whom any independence of his authority is oftenest likely to interfere with his individual preferences. If, in the other cases specified, powers manifestly grounded only on force and having so much less to support them, are so slowly and with so much difficulty got rid of, much more must it be so with this, even if it rests on no better foundation than those. We must consider, too, that the possessors of the power have facilities in this case, greater than in any other, to prevent any uprising against it. Every one of the subjects lives under the very eye, and almost, it may be said, in the hands of one of the masters." in closer intimacy with him than with any of her fellow subjects, with no means of combining against him, no power of even locally overmastering him, and, on the other hand, with the strongest motives for seeking his favor and avoiding to give him offense. In struggles for political emancipation, everybody knows how often its champions are bought off by bribes or daunted by terrors. In the case of women, each individual of the subject class is in a chronic state of bribery and intimidation combined. In setting up the standard of resistance, a large number of the leaders, and still more of the followers, must make an almost complete sacrifice of the pleasures or the alleviations of their own individual lot. If ever any system of privilege and enforced subjection had its yoke tightly riveted on the necks of those who are kept down by it, this has. I have not yet shown that it is a wrong system, but everyone who is capable of thinking on the subject must see that even if it is, it was certain to outlast all other forms of unjust authority. And when some of the grossest of the other forms still exist in many civilized countries, and have only recently been got rid of in others, it would be strange if that which is so much the deepest rooted had yet been perceptibly shaken anywhere. 
there is more reason to wonder that the protests and testimonies against it should have been so numerous and so weighty as they are some will object that a comparison cannot fairly be made between the government of the male sex and the forms of unjust power which i have adduced in illustration of it since these are arbitrary and the effect of mere usurpation while it on the contrary is natural but was there ever any domination which did not appear natural to those who possessed it there was a time when the division of mankind into two classes a small one of masters and a numerous one of slaves appeared even to the most cultivated minds to be a natural and the only natural condition of the human race no less an intellect and one which contributed no less to the progress of human thought than aristotle held this opinion without doubt or misgiving and rested it on the same premises on which the same assertion in regard to the dominion of men over women is usually based namely that there are different natures among mankind free natures and slave natures that the greeks were of a free nature the barbarian races of thracians and asiatics of a slave nature but why need i go back to aristotle did not the slave owners of the southern united states maintain the same doctrine with all the fanaticism with which men cling to the theories that justify their passions and legitimate their personal interests did they not call heaven and earth to witness that the dominion of white man over the black is natural that the black race is by nature incapable of freedom and marked out for slavery some even going so far as to say that the freedom of manual laborers is an unnatural order of things anywhere again the theorists of absolute monarchy have always affirmed it to be the only natural form of government issuing from the patriarchal which was the primitive and spontaneous form of society framed on the model of the paternal which is anterior to society itself and as they contend the most natural authority of all nay for that matter the law of force itself to those who could not plead any other has always seemed the most natural of all grounds for the exercise of authority conquering races hold it to be nature's own dictate that the conquered should obey the conquerors or as they euphoniously paraphrase it that the feebler and more unwarlike races should submit to the braver and manlier the smallest acquaintance with human life in the middle ages shows how supremely natural the dominion of the feudal nobility over men of low condition appeared to the nobility themselves and how unnatural the conception seemed of a person of the inferior class claiming equality with them or exercising authority over them it hardly seemed less so to the class held in subjection the emancipated serfs and burgesses even in their most vigorous struggles never made any pretension to a share of authority they only demanded more or less of limitation to the power of tyrannizing over them so true is it that unnatural generally means only uncustomary and that everything which is usual appears natural the subjection of women to men being a universal custom any departure from it quite naturally appears unnatural but how entirely even in this case the feeling is dependent on custom appears by ample experience nothing so much astonishes the people of distant parts of the world when they first learn anything about england as to be told that it is under a queen the thing seems to them so unnatural as to be almost incredible to englishmen this does not seem in the least degree unnatural because they are used to it but they do feel it unnatural that women should be soldiers or members of parliament 
In the feudal ages, on the contrary, war and politics were not thought unnatural to women, because not unusual. It seemed natural that women of the privileged classes should be of manly character, inferior in nothing but bodily strength to their husbands and fathers. The independence of women seemed rather less unnatural to the Greeks than to other ancients, on account of the fabulous Amazons, whom they believed to be historical, and the partial example afforded by the Spartan women, who, though no less subordinate by law than in other Greek states, were more free in fact, and being trained to bodily exercises in the same manner with men, gave ample proof that they were not naturally disqualified for them. But, it will be said, the rule of men over women differs from all these others in not being a rule of force. It is accepted voluntarily. Women make no complaint and are consenting parties to it. In the first place, a great number of women do not accept it. Ever since there have been women able to make their sentiments known by their writings, the only mode of publicity which society permits to them, an increasing number of them have recorded protests against their present social condition, and recently many thousands of them, headed by the most eminent women known to the public, have petitioned Parliament for their admission to the parliamentary suffrage. The claim of women to be educated as solidly, and in the same branches of knowledge as men, is urged with growing intensity, and with a great prospect of success, while the demand for their admission into professions and occupations hitherto closed against them becomes every year more urgent. Though there are not in this country, as there are in the United States, periodical conventions and an organized party to agitate for the rights of women, there is a numerous and active society organized and managed by women for the more limited object of obtaining the political franchise. Nor is it only in our country and in America that women are beginning to protest, more or less collectively, against the disabilities under which they labor. France and Italy and Switzerland and Russia now afford examples of the same thing, how many more women there are who silently cherish similar aspirations, no one can possibly know. But there are abundant tokens how many would cherish them, were they not so strenuously taught to repress them as contrary to the proprieties of their sex. It must be remembered, also, that no enslaved class ever asked for complete liberty at once. When Simon de Montfort called the deputies of the Commons to sit for the first time in Parliament, did any of them dream of demanding that an assembly elected by their constituents should make and destroy ministries and dictate to the king in affairs of state? No such thought entered into the imagination of the most ambitious of them. The nobility had already these pretensions. The commons pretended to nothing but to be exempt from arbitrary taxation and from the gross individual oppression of the king's officers. It is a political law of nature that those who are under any power of ancient origin never begin by complaining of the power itself, but only of its oppressive exercise. There is never any want of women who complain of ill usage by their husbands. There would be infinitely more if complaint were not the greatest of all provocatives to a repetition and increase of the ill usage. It is this which frustrates all attempts to maintain the power, but protect the woman against its abuses. In no other case, except that of a child, is the person who has been proved judicially to have suffered an injury replaced under the physical power of the culprit who inflicted it. Accordingly, wives, even in the most extreme and protracted cases of bodily ill usage, hardly ever dare avail themselves of the laws made for their protection. 
and if, in a moment of irrepressible indignation, or by the interference of neighbors, they are induced to do so, their whole effort afterwards is to disclose as little as they can, and to beg off their tyrant from his merited chastisement. All cases, social and natural, combine to make it unlikely that women should be collectively rebellious to the power of men. They are so far in a position different from all other subject classes, that their masters require something more from them than actual service. Men do not want solely the obedience of women. They want their sentiments. All men, except the most brutish, desire to have, in the woman most nearly connected with them, not a forced slave, but a willing one, not a slave merely, but a favorite. They have, therefore, put everything in practice to enslave their minds. The masters of all other slaves rely for maintaining obedience on fear, either fear of themselves or religious fears. The masters of women wanted more than simple obedience, and they turned the whole force of education to effect their purpose. All women are brought up from the very earliest years in the belief that their ideal of character is the very opposite to that of men, not self-will and government by self-control, but submission and yielding to the control of others. All the moralities tell them that it is the duty of women, and all the current sentimentalities that it is their nature, to live for others, to make complete abnegation of themselves, and to have no life but in their affections. And by their affections are meant the only ones they are allowed to have, those to the men with whom they are connected, or to the children who constitute an additional and indefeasible tie between them and a man. When we put together three things, first, the natural attraction between opposite sexes, secondly, the wife's entire dependence on the husband, every privilege or pleasure she has being either his gift or depending entirely on his will, and lastly, that the principal object of human pursuit, consideration, and all objects of social ambition can in general be sought or obtained by her only through him, it would be a miracle if the object of being attractive to men had not become the polar star of feminine education and formation of character. And, this great means of influence over the minds of women having been acquired, an instinct of selfishness made men avail themselves of it to the utmost as a means of holding women in subjection, by representing to them meekness, submissiveness, and resignation of all individual will into the hands of a man, as an essential part of sexual attractiveness. Can it be doubted that any of the other yokes which mankind have succeeded in breaking would have subsisted till now if the same means had existed, and had been as sedulously used to bow down their minds to it? If it had been made the object of the life of every young plebeian to find personal favor in the eyes of some patrician, of every young serf with some seigneur, if domestication with him, and a share of his personal affections, had been held out as the prize which they all should look out for, the most gifted and aspiring being able to reckon on the most desirable prizes, and if, when this prize had been attained, they had been shut out by a wall of brass from all interests not centering in him, all feelings and desires but those which he shared or inculcated, would not serfs and seigneurs, plebeians and patricians, have been as broadly distinguished as this day as men and women are, and would not all but a thinker here and there 
have believed the distinction to be a fundamental and unalterable fact in human nature. The preceding considerations are amply sufficient to show that custom, however universal it may be, affords in this case no presumption, and ought not to create any prejudice in favor of the arrangements which place women in social and political subjection to men. But I may go farther, and maintain that the course of history and the tendencies of progressive human society afford not only no presumption in favor of this system of inequality of rights, but a strong one against it, and that, so far as the whole course of human improvement up to this time, the whole stream of modern tendencies warrants any inference on the subject, it is that this relic of the past is discordant with the future, and must necessarily disappear. For what is the peculiar character of the modern world, the difference which chiefly distinguishes modern institutions, modern social ideas, modern life itself, from those times of long past? It is that human beings are no longer born to their place in life, and chained down by an inexorable bond to the place they are born to, but are free to employ their faculties, and such favorable chances as offer, to achieve the lot which may appear to them most desirable. Human society of old was constituted on a very different principle. All were born to a fixed social position, and were mostly kept in it by law, or interdicted from any means by which they could emerge from it. As some men are born white and others black, so some were born slaves and others free men and citizens. Some were born patricians, other plebeians. Some were born feudal nobles, others commoners and roturiers. A slave or serf could never make himself free, nor, except by the will of his master, become so. In most European countries it was not till towards the close of the Middle Ages, and as a consequence of the growth of regal power, that commoners could be ennobled. Even among nobles, the eldest son was born the exclusive heir to the paternal possessions, and a long time elapsed before it was fully established that the father could disinherit him. Among the industrious classes, only those who were born members of a guild, or were admitted into it by its members, could lawfully practice their calling within its local limits, and nobody could practice any calling deemed important, in any but the legal manner, by processes authoritatively prescribed. Manufacturers have stood in the pillory for presuming to carry on their business by new and improved methods. In modern Europe, and most in those parts of it which have participated most largely in all other modern improvements, diametrically opposite doctrines now prevail. Law and government do not undertake to prescribe by whom any social or industrial operation shall or shall not be conducted, or what modes of conducting them shall be lawful. These things are left to the unfettered choice of individuals. Even the laws that required that workmen should serve an apprenticeship have in this country been repealed, there being ample assurance that in all cases in which an apprenticeship is necessary, its necessity will suffice to enforce it. The old theory was that the least possible should be left to the choice of the individual agent, that all he had to do should, as far as practicable, be laid down for him by superior wisdom. Left to himself, he was sure to go wrong. The modern conviction, the fruit of a thousand years of experience, is that things in which the individual is the person directly interested never go right but as they are left to his own discretion, and that any regulation of them by authority, except to protect the rights of others, is sure to be mischievous. 
This conclusion, slowly arrived at, and not adopted until almost every possible application of the contrary theory had been made with disastrous result, now, in the industrial department, prevails universally in the most advanced countries, almost universally in all that have pretensions to any sort of advancement. It is not that all processes are supposed to be equally good, or all persons to be equally qualified for everything, but that freedom of individual choice is now known to be the only thing which procures the adoption of the best processes, and throws each operation into the hands of those who are best qualified for it. Nobody thinks it necessary to make a law that only a strong-armed man shall be a blacksmith. Freedom and competition suffice to make blacksmiths strong-armed men, because the weak-armed can earn more by engaging in occupations for which they are more fit. In consonance with this doctrine, it is felt to be an overstepping of the proper bounds of authority to fix beforehand, on some general presumption, that certain persons are not fit to do certain things. It is now thoroughly known and admitted that if some such presumptions exist, no such presumption is infallible. Even if it be well grounded in a majority of cases, which it is very likely not to be, there will be a minority of exceptional cases in which it does not hold and in those it is both an injustice to the individuals and a detriment to society to place barriers in the way of their using their faculties for their own benefit and for that of others in the cases on the other hand in which the unfitness is real the ordinary motives of human conduct will on the whole suffice to prevent the incompetent person from making or from persisting in the attempt if this general principle of social and economical science is not true if individuals, with such help as they can derive from the opinion of those who know them, are not better judges than the law and the government, of their own capacities and vocation, the world cannot too soon abandon this principle and return to the old system of regulations and disabilities. But, if the principle is true, we ought to act as if we believed it, and not to ordain that to be born a girl instead of a boy, any more than to be born black instead of white, or a commoner instead of a nobleman, shall decide the person's position through all life, shall interdict people from all the more elevated social positions, and from all, except a few, respectable occupations. Even were we to admit the utmost that is ever pretended as to the superior fitness of men for all the functions now reserved to them, the same argument applies which forbids illegal qualification for members of Parliament, if only once in a dozen years the conditions of eligibility exclude a fit person, there is a real loss, while the exclusion of thousands of unfit persons is no gain, for if the constitution of the electoral body disposes them to choose unfit persons, there are always plenty of such persons to choose from. In all things of any difficulty and importance, those who can do them well are fewer than the need, even with the most unrestricted latitude of choice and any limitation of the field of selection deprives society of some chances of being served by the competent, without ever saving it from the incompetent. End of chapter 1, part 2 Chapter 1, part 3 of The Subjection of Women This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
Recording by M.B. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill Chapter 1 Part 3 At present, in the more improved countries, the disabilities of women are the only case, save one, in which laws and institutions take persons at their birth and ordain that they shall never in all their lives be allowed to compete for certain things. The one exception is that of royalty. Persons still are born to the throne. No one, not even of the reigning family, can ever occupy it, and no one even of that family can, by any means but the course of hereditary succession, attain it. All other dignities and social advantages are open to the whole male sex. Many, indeed, are only attainable by wealth, but wealth may be striven for by anyone, and is actually obtained by many men of the very humblest origin. The difficulties to the majority are indeed insuperable without the aid of fortunate accidents. But no male human being is under any legal ban. Neither law nor opinion superadd artificial articles to the natural ones. Royalty, as I have said, is accepted, but in this case everyone feels it to be an exception, an anomaly in the modern world in marked opposition to its customs and principles, and to be justified only by extraordinary special expediences, which, though individuals and nations differ in estimating their weight, unquestionably do in fact exist. But in this exceptional case, in which a high social function is, for important reasons, bestowed on birth instead of being put up to competition, all free nations contrive in substance to subscribe to the principal form which they nominally derogate. For they circumscribe this high function by conditions avowedly intended to prevent the person to whom it ostensibly belongs from really performing it while the person to whom it is performed the responsible minister does obtain the post by a competition from which no full-grown citizen of the male sex is legally excluded the disabilities therefore to which women are subject from the mere fact of their birth are the solitary examples of the kind in modern legislation in no instance except this which comprehends half the human race are the higher social functions closed against any one by a fatality of birth which no exertions and no change of circumstances can overcome for even religious disabilities besides that in england and in europe they have practically almost ceased to exist do not close any career to the disqualified person in case of conversion the social subordination of women thus stands out an isolated fact in modern social institutions, a solitary breach of what has become their fundamental law, a single relic of an old world of thought and practice exploded in everything else, but retained in the one thing of most universal interest, as if a gigantic dolmen, or a vast temple of Jupiter Olympius, occupied the site of St. Paul's and received daily worship while the surrounding Christian churches were only resorted to on fasts and festivals. This entire discrepancy between one social fact and all those which accompany it, and the radical opposition between its nature and the progressive movement which is the boast of the modern world, and which has successively swept away everything else of an analogous nature, surely affords, 
to a conscientious observer of human tendencies, serious matter for reflection. It raises a prima facie presumption on the unfavorable side, far outweighing any which custom and usage could in such circumstances create on the favorable, and should at least suffice to make this, like the choice between republicanism and royalty, a balanced question. The least that can be demanded is that the question should not be considered as prejudged by existing fact and existing opinion, but open to discussion on its merits, as a question of justice and expediency. The decision on this, as on any of the other social arrangements of mankind, depending on what an enlightened estimate of tendencies and consequences may show to be most advantageous to humanity in general, without distinction of sex. And the discussion must be a real discussion, descending to foundations, and not resting satisfied with vague and general assertions. It will not do, for instance, to assert in general terms that the experience of mankind has pronounced in favor of the existing system. Experience cannot possibly have decided between two courses so long as there has only been experience of one. If it be said that the doctrine of equality of the sexes rests only on theory, it must be remembered that the contrary doctrine also has only theory to rest upon. All that is proved in its favor by direct experience is that mankind have been able to exist under it and to attain the degree of improvement and prosperity which we now see. But whether that prosperity has been attained sooner or is now greater than it would have been under the other system, experience does not say. On the other hand, experience does say that every step in improvement has been so invariably accompanied by a step made in raising the social position of women, that historians and philosophers have been led to adopt their elevation or debasement as on the whole the surest test and most correct measure of the civilization of a people or an age. Through all the progressive period of human history, the condition of women has been approaching nearer to equality with men. This does not of itself prove that the assimilation must go on to complete equality, but it assuredly affords some presumption that such is the case. Neither does it avail anything to say that the nature of the two sexes adapts them to their present functions and position, and renders these appropriate to them. Standing on the ground of common sense and the constitution of the human mind, I deny that anyone knows or can know the nature of the two sexes, as long as they have only been seen in their present relation to one another. If men had ever been found in society without women, or women without men, or if there had been a society of men and women in which the women were not under the control of the men, something might have been positively known about the mental and moral differences which may be inherent in the nature of each. What is now called the nature of women is an eminently artificial thing, the result of forced repression in some directions, unnatural stimulation in others. It may be asserted without scruple that no other class of dependents have had their character so entirely distorted from its natural proportions by their relation with their masters. For if conquered and slave races have been, in some respects, 
more forcibly repressed, whatever in them has not been crushed down by an iron heel has generally been let alone, and in left with any liberty of development, it has developed itself according to its own laws. But in the case of women, a hothouse and stove cultivation has always been carried on of some of the capabilities of their nature, for the benefit and pleasure of their masters. Then, because certain products of the general vital force sprout luxuriantly and reach a great development in this heated atmosphere, and under this act of nurture and watering, while other shoots from the same root, which are left outside in the wintry air, with ice purposely heaped all round them, have a stunted growth, and some are burnt off with fire and disappear, men, with that inability to recognize their own work which distinguishes the unanalytic mind, indolently believe that the tree grows of itself in the way they have made it grow, and that it would die if one half of it were not kept in a vapor-bath and the other half in the snow. Of all the difficulties which impede the progress of thought, and the formation of well-grounded opinions on life and social arrangements, the greatest is now the unspeakable ignorance and inattention of mankind in respect to the influences which form human character. Whatever any portion of the human species now are, or seem to be, such, it is supposed, they have a natural tendency to be. Even when the most elementary knowledge of the circumstances in which they have been placed clearly points out the causes that made them what they are. Because a cottier deeply in arrears to his landlord is not industrious, there are people who think that the Irish are naturally idle. Because constitutions can be overthrown when the authorities appointed to execute them turn their arms against them, there are people who think the French incapable of free government. Because the Greeks cheated the Turks, and the Turks only plundered the Greeks, there are persons who think that the Turks are naturally more sincere. And because women, as is often said, care nothing about politics except their personalities, it is supposed that the general good is naturally less interesting to women than to men. History, which is now so much better understood than formerly, teaches another lesson if only by showing the extraordinary susceptibility of human nature to external influences, and the extreme variableness of those of its manifestations which are supposed to be most universal and uniform. But in history, as in travelling, men usually see only what they already had in their own minds, and few learn much from history, who do not bring much with them to its study. Hence, in regard to that most difficult question, what are the natural differences between the two sexes, a subject on which it is impossible in the present state of society to obtain complete and correct knowledge. While almost everybody dogmatizes upon it, almost all neglect and make light of the only means by which any partial insight can be obtained into it. This is an analytic study of the most important department of psychology, the laws of the influence of circumstances on character. For however great and apparently ineradicable the moral and intellectual differences between men and women might be, the evidence of their being natural differences could only be negative. Those only could be inferred to be natural which could not possibly be artificial. 
the residuum after deducting every characteristic of either sex which can admit of being explained from education or external circumstances the profoundest knowledge of the laws of the formation of character is indispensable to entitle any one to affirm even that there is any difference much more what the difference is between the two sexes considered as moral and rational beings and since no one as yet has that knowledge for there is hardly any subject which in proportion to its importance has been so little studied no one is thus far entitled to any positive opinion on the subject conjectures are all that can at present be made conjectures more or less probable according as more or less authorized by such knowledge as we yet have of the laws of psychology as applied to the formation of character even the preliminary knowledge what the difference between the sexes now are apart from all question as to how they are made what they are is still in the crudest and most incomplete state medical practitioners and physiologists have ascertained to some extent the differences in bodily constitution and this is an important element to the psychologist but hardly any medical practitioner is a psychologist respecting the mental characteristics of women their observations are of no more worth than those of common men it is a subject on which nothing final can be known so long as those who alone can really know it women themselves have given but little testimony and that little mostly suborned it is easy to know stupid women stupidity is much the same all the world over a stupid person's notions and feelings may confidently be inferred from those which prevail in the circle by which the person is surrounded not so with those whose opinions and feelings are an emanation from their own nature and faculties it is only a man here and there who has any tolerable knowledge of the character even of the women of his own family i do not mean of their capabilities these nobody knows not even themselves because most of them have never been called out i mean their actually existing thoughts and feelings many a man thinks he perfectly understands women because he has had amatory relations with several perhaps with many of them if he is a good observer and his experience extends to quality as well as quantity he may have learned something of one narrow department of their nature an important department no doubt but of all the rest of it few persons are generally more ignorant because there are few from whom it is so carefully hidden the most favorable case which a man can generally have for studying the character of a woman is that of his own wife for the opportunities are greater and the cases of complete sympathy not so unspeakably rare and in fact this is the source from which any knowledge worth having on the subject has i believe generally come but most men have not had the opportunity of studying in this way more than a single case accordingly one can to an almost laughable degree infer what a man's wife is like from his opinions about women in general to make even this one case yield any result the woman must be worth knowing and the man not only a competent judge but of a character so sympathetic in itself and so well adapted to hers that he can either read her mind by sympathetic intuition or has nothing in himself which makes her shy of disclosing it 
Hardly anything, I believe, can be more rare than this conjunction. It often happens that there is the most complete unity of feeling and community of interests as to all external things, yet the one has as little admission into the internal life of the other as if they were common acquaintances. Even with true affection, authority on the one side and subordination on the other prevent perfect confidence. Though nothing may be intentionally withheld, much is not shown. In the analogous relation of parent and child, the corresponding phenomenon must have been in the observation of every one. As between father and son, how many are the cases in which the father, in spite of real affection on both sides, obviously to all the world does not know or suspect parts of the son's character familiar to his companions and equals? The truth is that the position of looking up to another is extremely unpropitious to complete sincerity and openness with him. The fear of losing ground in his opinion or in his feelings is so strong that even in an upright character there is an unconscious tendency to show only the best side, or the side which, though not the best, is that which he most likes to see. And it may be confidently said that thorough knowledge of one another hardly ever exists, but between two persons who, besides being intimates, are equals. How much more true, then, must all this be when the one is not only under the authority of the other, but has it inculcated on her as a duty to reckon everything else subordinate to his comfort and pleasure, and to let him neither see nor feel anything coming from her except what is agreeable to him? All these difficulties stand in the way of a man's obtaining any thorough knowledge even of the one woman whom alone, in general, he has sufficient opportunity of studying. When we further consider that to understand one woman is not necessarily to understand any other woman, that even if he could study many women of one rank or of one country, he would not thereby understand women of other ranks or countries, and even if he did, they are still only the women of a single period of history, we may safely assert that the knowledge which men can acquire of women, even as they have been and are, without reference to what they might be, is wretchedly imperfect and superficial, and always will be so, until women themselves have told all that they have to tell. And this time has not come nor will it come otherwise than gradually. It is but of yesterday that women have either been qualified by literary accomplishments or permitted by society to tell anything to the general public. As yet, very few of them dare tell anything which men, on whom their literary success depends, are unwilling to hear. Let us remember in what manner, up to a very recent time, the expression, even by a male author, of uncustomary opinions, or what are deemed eccentric feelings, usually was, and in some degree still is, received, and we may form some faint conception under what impediments a woman, who is brought up to think custom and opinion her sovereign rule, attempts to express in books anything drawn from the depths of her own nature. The greatest woman who has left writings behind her sufficient to give her an eminent rank in the literature of her country thought it necessary to prefix as a motto to her boldest work, un homme pour braver l'opinion, une femme 
Doisy-sur-Maitre. Footnote. Title page of Madame de Stel's Delphine. End footnote. The greater part of what women write about women is mere sycophancy to men. In the case of unmarried women, much of it seems only intended to increase their chance of a husband. Many, both married and unmarried, overstep the mark and inculcate a servility beyond what is desired or relished by any man, except the very vulgarest. But this is not so often the case as, even at a quite late period, it still was. Literary women are becoming more free-spoken and more willing to express their real sentiments. Unfortunately, in this country especially, they are themselves such artificial products that their sentiments are compounded of a small element of individual observation and consciousness and a very large one of acquired associations. This will be less and less the case but it will remain true to a great extent as long as social institutions do not admit the same free development of originality in women which is possible to men. When that time comes, and not before, we shall see, and not merely hear, as much as it is necessary to know of the nature of women, and the adaptation of other things to it. I have dwelt so much on the difficulties which at present obstruct any real knowledge by men of the true nature of women, because in this as in so many other things, opinio copie inter maximus causas inopie est, and there is little chance of reasonable thinking on the matter when people flatter themselves that they perfectly understand a subject of which most men know absolutely nothing, and of which it is at present impossible that any man, or all men taken together, should have knowledge which can qualify them to lay down the law to women as to what is or is not their vocation. Happily, no such knowledge is necessary for any practical purpose connected with the position of women in relation to society and life. For, according to all the principles involved in modern society, the question rests with women themselves, to be decided by their own experience, and by the use of their own faculties. There are no means of finding what either one person or many can do but by trying, and no means by which anyone else can discover for them what it is for their happiness to do or leave undone. One thing we may be certain of, that what is contrary to women's nature to do, they never will be made to do by simply giving their nature free play. The anxiety of mankind to interfere in behalf of nature, for fear lest nature should not succeed in effecting its purpose, is an altogether unnecessary solicitude. What women by nature cannot do, it is quite superfluous to forbid them from doing. What they can do, but not so well as the men who are their competitors, competition suffices to exclude from them. Since nobody asks for protective duties and bounties in favor of women, it is only asked that the present bounties and protective duties in favor of men should be recalled. If women have a greater natural inclination for some things than for others, there is no need of laws or social inculcation to make the majority of them do the former in preference to the latter. Whatever women's services are most wanted for, 
the free play of competition will hold out the strongest inducements to them to undertake and as the words imply they are most wanted for the things for which they are most fit by the apportionment of which to them the collective faculties of the two sexes can be applied on the whole with the greatest sum of valuable result the general opinion of men is supposed to be that the natural vocation of a woman is that of a wife and mother i say is supposed to be because judging from acts from the whole of the present constitution of society one might infer that their opinion was the direct contrary they might be supposed to think that the alleged natural vocation of women was of all things the most repugnant to their nature inasmuch that if they are free to do anything else if any other means of living or occupation of their time and faculties is open which has any chance of appearing desirable to them there will not be enough of them who will be willing to accept the conditions said to be natural to them if this is the real opinion of men in general it would be well that it should be spoken out i should like to hear somebody openly enunciating the doctrine it is necessary to society that women should marry and produce children they will not do so unless they are compelled therefore it is necessary to compel them the merits of the case would then be clearly defined it would be exactly that of the slaveholders of south carolina and louisiana it is necessary that cotton and sugar should be grown white men cannot produce them negroes will not for any wages which we choose to give ergo they must be compelled an illustration still closer to the point is that of impressment sailors must absolutely be had to defend the country it often happens that they will not voluntarily enlist therefore there must be the power of forcing them how often has this logic been used and but for one flaw in it without doubt it would have been successful up to this day but it is open to the retort first pay the sailors the honest value of their labor when you have made it as well worth their while to serve you as to work for other employers you will have no more difficulty than others have in obtaining their services to this there is no logical example except i will not and as people are now not only ashamed but are not desirous to rob the laborer of his hire impressment is no longer advocated those who attempt to force women into marriage by closing all other doors against them lay themselves open to a similar retort if they mean what they say their opinion must evidently be that men do not render the married condition so desirable to women as to induce them to accept it for its own recommendations it is not a sign of one's thinking the boon one offers very attractive when one allows only hobson's choice that or none and here i believe is the clue to the feelings of those men who have a real antipathy to the equal freedom of women i believe they are afraid not lest women should be unwilling to marry for i do not think that any one in reality has that apprehension but lest they should insist that marriage should be on equal conditions lest all women of spirit and capacity should prefer doing almost anything else not in their own eyes degrading rather than marry when marrying is giving themselves a master and a master too of all their earthly possessions 
and truly if this consequence were necessarily incident to marriage i think that the apprehension would be very well founded i agree in thinking it probable that few women capable of anything else would unless under an irresistible entrainment rendering them for the time insensible to anything but itself choose such a lot when any other means were open to them of filling a conventionally honourable place in life and if men are determined that the law of marriage shall be a law of despotism they are quite right in point of mere policy in leaving to women only hobson's choice but in that case all that has been done in the modern world to relax the chains on the minds of women has been a mistake they never should have been allowed to receive a literary education women who read much more women who write are in the existing constitution of things a contradiction and a disturbing element and it was wrong to bring women up with any acquirements but those of an autolisk or of a domestic servant End of chapter 1, part 3